an inspirational speech to motivate the inhabitants of Jerusalem to continue rebuilding the wall in spite of ridicule, criticism, and the threat of violence on the part of those who had a vested interest in seeing the project fail. What is recorded of Nehemiah's speech is shorter than the famous one depicted in Braveheart, but it's no less inspiring. A great speech does not make a great leader. Great character and perseverance toward a worthy cause in the face of stiff opposition are more critical to good leadership. But the ability to communicate ideas and motivate people through words is one of the characteristics that is common to all the greats of history. Chapter 3 of Nehemiah tells of the individuals who participated in the rebuilding of the wall. In chapter 2, verse 18, the people of Jerusalem, in response to Nehemiah's exhortation to get to work on rebuilding the wall, vowed to do just that. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and how and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me, then they said, this is the people of Jerusalem, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. You recall that shortly after arriving in Jerusalem, Nehemiah made a secret evaluation of the situation there by night. Nehemiah starts at the southern area, the valley gate, moves down to the dung gate, back up to the water gate, and then comes, in, then comes and finds a large amount of rubble. He can't get past it without going too far into this Kidron Valley, so he comes back through the valley gate. All this is done at night. He wants to see exactly what the situation is before he develops his final plan, and good leaders will do that. They take, a, they take an evaluation of the entirety of the situation, and then they make their plan. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. Some of you might, some of you asked last time, what is the dung gate? Why would somebody call a gate that? This is the area through which they took all the sewage out of Jerusalem, and then they would dump it into the Valley of Hinnom, which is south of the city. I didn't, I was going to check the prevailing winds. I'm assuming the prevailing winds are from north to south, not south to north. Otherwise, they would have dumped it somewhere else. But that's what that gate's all about. Jerusalem was not as vulnerable from the south, an attack from the south, as it was from the north. So when Nehemiah goes and checks these walls, they're still there, although they've been badly damaged. The reason he doesn't have to check the walls all the way around and through to the north is because those walls are completely gone. He saw that when he was coming in. So he wanted to see, is there anything left? And certainly he sees that part of the southern walls are intact, but the rest of the northern walls would have all been completely destroyed. The point of chapter 3 is that the rebuilding of the wall is a group effort. If you read through this, and I invite you to do it a little bit later, it's, it's not a chapter that we would do verse-by-verse verse exposition of because it's a listing of the names and the parts of the, re, of the wall that they that rebuilt. But the point is that it's a group effort, starting with Eliashiv, the high priest, who, by the way, is a grandson of Yeshua, who is the high priest under Zerubbabel. Ezra chapter 3, verse 2 told us that. Eliashib led by example. He's the first one mentioned. And surely this encouraged others to get their hands dirty as well. This wasn't a group of leaders that's telling everybody else, you go out there and do it. This is a group of leaders starting with the high priest who got involved in the work project itself. 
And that had to motivate other people. If a high priest is doing it, they may look over and say, then I could do it too. It's difficult to say with any kind of certainty how much of the wall was rebuilt. If the, amount of, if the, if the wall that was rebuilt is reflected by this heavier line that I have here, then, and that's called a minimalist view with regard to how much of the wall was, was put back together. If that's the case, then approximately 90 acres uh, were, were enclosed inside this wall. There is another view that may actually be a better view, and that is that this outer wall was also called the extensive wall was also enclosed. And if that's the case, then the walls enclosed about 220 acres. Either way, it's still a relatively small city, either 90 acres or 220 acres. As chapter 3 ends, we get the impression that things are just going wonderfully and that the wall is going to be rebuilt and everybody is going to live happily ever after. Not so. In chapter 4, and this is where I'd like to pick up the narrative tonight, re-enter Sanballat. Now it came about that when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. And he spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? We first met this man, Sanballat, in chapter 2, verse 10, when he is upset over the idea of someone from the Persian court coming back to Jerusalem and even ascertaining what the situation is there. He doesn't even know why he's come back yet in chapter 2, verse 10. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, he's really upset when he learns the real reason for Nehemiah's return to Jerusalem, that the wall is going to be rebuilt, and he begins mocking the idea. We saw that in the last lesson. You may also recall from last lesson, too, that we learned from extra-biblical sources that this man, Sanballat, was the governor of Samaria, the area that's right north of Jerusalem. So it would have been to, in his best interest to keep Jerusalem weak, a strong Jerusalem would have been a threat to Samaria. So he wants this area weak. So first he thinks he's upset when Nehemiah just comes to town. Somebody from the Persian court's coming and check on the situation. He's upset about that. When he learns the plan is to rebuild the wall, he's getting more upset. And now he sees that the people have started, he is furious. This man and his buddy, Tobiah, are little worms. They're doing everything that they can to discourage the rebuilding of this wall by criticism and mockery. Listen to these questions in verse 2. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Well, nobody was trying to, nobody was trying to finish this in a day. You see, he's inserting all these negativities to try to discourage them. And I love this one. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? What are they going to use for building blocks? Where are they going to get the material to rebuild this? All of these questions about how you can't do something. And those kind of things get discouraging. Somebody comes up with an idea, we're going to do this. 
whether it's a business or an organization or a church, we've got this grand idea we're going to do this, and it's the common thing to happen for everyone and his uncle to figure out every which way why that can't work. No, no, you can't, you can't do that. No, 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 you can't do that. And that's exactly what these guys try to begin with. They're going to try something a little bit more radical as we get toward the end of our passage today. But the first thing they try is criticism and ridicule. Look at verse 3. Now Tobiah, the, the Ammonite, was near him and said, Even what they are building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. The craftsmanship is terrible here. Look at, look at this, the weakness of this wall. Even the wall they're building is terrible. Now remember, this man has a vested interest in making sure Jerusalem's not rebuilt. Of course, the temple's been rebuilt. The altar's been rebuilt. The temple's been rebuilt. That was Ezra. Remember that. But the city is defenseless. There's no wall around it. Now, some people might say, and a lot of Christians do from time to time, we don't need any defenses. God is our defense. We don't need a military. I don't need to own a gun. I don't need to get a concealed handgun license. I don't need to take a, a martial arts self-defense course. I don't need to lock my doors. I don't need to get a security system on my home. In fact, if I have a security system on my car, that shows a lack of faith. I've all heard, heard every single one of those things from Christians and people who are fine Christians. I'm not, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying I've, I've heard these things. Jerusalem is defenseless. But spiritual Nehemiah, Nehemiah who's a principled spiritual leader, does think that the wall around Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. Yes, we count upon God for our security. But you know what? It's not sinful to lock your door at night when you go to bed. Don't let anybody talk you into that being sinful. Yes, it's okay if you have a weapon to defend your home. Don't let anybody talk you into that being sinful. Now, I'm, it's going to be a little harder to use it than you think. A lot, a lot of us watch these shows and watch people just get shot all the time, and people go down and say, have a, have a cup of coffee and a steak. In real life, it doesn't usually work that way. If you have to end someone's life, even if it is a bad guy, it's probably going to ruin your night, most likely. So don't take it too lightly. But the idea that God is going to protect us, so therefore I have to, do, I have to take no action myself, that's not a biblical idea. Remember what we studied in the first chapter? The thing that made Nehemiah great, one of the things that made him great, was he was a man of prayer and then a man of action. Exactly right. Prayer first and then action. Prayer first and then action. Not prayer by itself. And heaven forbid, not action by itself. If, if, if we just did prayer by itself and took no action, God's going to look down and say, what are they doing? I gave them energy. I gave them intelligence. I gave them the resources, but they're not using it. If we just take the action without any prayerful consideration ahead of time, we're getting way out in front of God, and God's saying, wait a minute, what are they doing? What is he doing out there? What is, what is he doing way out there all by himself? No, that's not where I want him. So Nehemiah demonstrates to us that when we come across a difficult situation, this may not seem like much to us, but it was real difficult for Jerusalem. When they come across a difficult situation, the, the order of battle is you pray first intensely. Remember that prayer from chapter 1? One of the great prayers of the Bible. It's intense prayer. And then you get off the sofa and you go to work. Or you get off your knees and you get up and go to work. Not prayer without work. Not work without prayer. Prayer preceding action. That's the modus operandi of the mature believer. Now back to chapter 4. We see these people are criticizing everything that's done. From the, the 
the quality of the work to the to the ambition of the people that are building it. You can never you you can never accomplish something like that. No, never. And you know what? Most of them would have probably said, "You're right." By ourselves, we can't. But with God, we certainly can. If God is on our side, who can be against us? I love what Teddy Roosevelt said. Just one of my favorite quotes of all times. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbled or the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotions, and spins himself in a worthy cause, who, at the best, in the end, knows the triumph of high achievement, and who, at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly so that his place will never be with those cold and timid souls who live in that gray twilight that knows neither victory or defeat. Now that's how you deal with criticism. That's not, I'm not talking about constructive criticism. I'm not talking about somebody saying how hey, you could do something better and really trying to help you out. I'm talking about destructive criticism. We can easily see how destructive criticism is such a terrible thing when somebody else is doing it to somebody else. We can see that, can't we? Can't you see what a, what a bunch of little worms, Sanballat and Tobiah were? No, no disrespect to worms. I probably should pick something else. <laughs> These guys are just little worms. And I can see what little worms they are by this mockery and this ridicule and this criticism, this unwarranted criticism. This destructive criticism, it's easy for me to see that when somebody else is doing it to somebody else. But are we objective enough to see it when we find ourselves the one who's doing the criticism? It's real easy to criticize. It's not real easy to take it, but it's real easy to criticize. And again, I'm not talking about helpful constructive criticism. I'm talking about this kind of criticism. A fox is going to jump on that wall. It's going to knock it down. These people don't know what they're doing. They have no idea. They have no idea what they're doing. That's the kind of criticism I'm talking about. So we need to be careful while we recognize it in somebody else. We need to be careful that that's not a lifestyle of our own. We all do it from time to time. That's just the human nature. I think it is. And I'm not making an excuse for it, but I recognize that. But it doesn't need to become a habit pattern because it's not lovely. In Paul's epistle to the Philippians, he, he tells us, and I paraphrase, we need to concentrate on that which is lovely, that which is good, that which is godlike. And this kind of mean-spirited, destructive criticism is not that. So let's don't just pass over these first three verses and say, yeah, Tobiah and Sanballat were little worms because they were people who ridiculed and, and criticized and depressed people. Let's make sure that we don't do that ourselves. Well, then in verses 4 through 5, we have what's called an imprecatory prayer. Imprecation or imprecatory. Imprecatory is an adjective. Webster describes it as an unspoken curse. That's what an imprecatory prayer means. Let me, let me read you the prayer and you'll see what I'm talking about. 
Hear our God, how we are despised. This is Nehemiah speaking. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity and do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before thee for they have demoralized the builders. Wow. That's an imprecatory prayer. That's a prayer bringing a curse down upon someone else. Since we spent a lot of time talking about it over the last year, year and a half, how should we as a Christian, a New Testament Christian, interpret this kind of praying? Especially in view of what Jesus Christ has said about forgiving one another, and the fact that if we don't forgive others, we're not going to be forgiven ourselves, and what Jesus Christ says about praying for our enemies. How are we to interpret this kind of prayer? Is this prayer something that should be normative for the church-age Christian? Generally speaking, New Testament scholars, now we're in the Old Testament right now, but generally speaking, New Testament scholars agree that this type of prayer is not normative for the New Testament believer. So if you were furiously taking notes about which, how you can pray to God that your enemy's feet might fall off, and they get some sort of skin disease, and their dermatologist might be out to lunch that day, don't, don't pray that. I think you're going to have to slow down just a bit, because it's very unlikely, extremely unlikely, that this kind of prayer is normative for the New Testament believer. But the question would be, well, what about the Old Testament? Is Nehemiah sinning when he does this? Is David sinning when he does it in the Psalms? Because we see this in the Psalms as well. Was it acceptable in the economy of the Old Testament? Apparently it was. We see it here. We see it in the Psalms. But there are certain criteria that seem to have to be met even in the Old Testament sense. Okay, watch, in case you're just now tuning in. This is not something I want you to try at home. I want you just to listen to what happened in the Old Testament, but I don't want you to take out of here. I'm going to get, I'm going to get really involved in these imprecatory prayers. You know how certain people, certain people get certain aspects of their spiritual life, and they just ride that, that horse till they can't ride anymore. This is not one of those ones I want you to ride. We do need to make these four observations about this prayer and Nehemiah's legitimacy in praying this prayer. First, in opposing the Jews... Sanballat and the company of people that he's with were actually opposing God. Second, God had already pronounced judgment on Israel's enemies. Nehemiah was praying according to God's will when he prays this, that God would deliver Jerusalem from their enemies. That's back in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Third, Nehemiah was praying that God would bring about what he had promised Abraham regarding those who would curse his people. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And fourth, we need to remember, and Nehemiah knew this, vengeance belongs to God, not to Nehemiah, and not to any other believer. It belongs to God. The idea being, to summarize all four of those up, that Nehemiah is actually praying, when he prays this imprecatory prayer, he is praying in accordance with God's already revealed will. And that is that the enemies of Israel were to be cursed. So even in the Old Testament economy, Nehemiah is not out there doing his own will, taking his own vengeance. He is praying in accordance with God's will that has already been revealed. Hear, O oh our God, how we are despised. Look at this situation. This is a Genesis 12-3 moment, Father, Yahweh. To return their reproach, reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. The stuff they're doing to us, 
may it boomerang back upon them. Do not forgive their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out before thee, for they have demoralized the building. That's the those who curse you, I will curse. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. So in that sense, and I'm not trying to do some, some verbal gymnastics here and try to get Nehemiah out of something that he shouldn't have gotten out of. The text doesn't condemn him at all. Throughout the entirety of this text, he's portrayed as a, as a positive, spiritual, principled leader. But it looks like that's why he can legitimately praise these things. Today, I think we ought to not try this at home. It would be very, very difficult. God desires the salvation of all men. Uh, as a nation, the United States has no... Forgive me, but the United States has no particular special standing among the community of nations. We're not the new Israel. I think we have a, a, a wonderful place in the plan of God because we, by and large, still serve him and we send out missionaries. But we can't pray a prayer like this, superimposing the United States back upon the Israel of the past. I wish we could. I wish we could say that Americans are the people of God, and therefore, if you mess with us, then you mess with God, and therefore, God's going to bring a curse down upon you so that we can, we can pray these things that lies outside the dispensational boundaries. In verse 6, so he built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Now, it came about when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that repair on the walls of Jerusalem went on, and that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. Remember, he was, he was really hacked off. I'm going to run out of adjectives here, but he was really hacked off when he found out that they were just coming back to look at the situation. He was really, really hacked off when he found out what the, what the plan was. When they started the work, he was really, really, really hacked off. And now that they tried to depress them and it didn't work, fill in your own blank. He was furious. Really, really, really furious. And all of them conspired to come together and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. Uh-oh, now, now the temperature just went up in the room. Now they're not just talking about using verbal barrages. Now there's a threat of actual violence against the rebuilders. And don't you think that would happen? Because they don't want that wall built because a strong Jerusalem is a threat to them. It's a threat to Samaria. It's a threat to all the surrounding area. Nehemiah didn't wait around. You know, he prays this imprecatory prayer. But once again, we see him. He prays the prayer, and then he gets right back to work. I love this guy. He, he does the first things first. He prays to God, but then he goes right back to work. That's great, spiritual, principled leadership. These verses tell us that the work is about halfway finished. The wall is about half the height that it should be. Tells us that Sambalat and his buddies, his little worm buddies, are even more angry than they were before. But it also clues us in to the fact that violent opposition is on the way. Now, that's a whole different animal, isn't it? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But a big old club might put a knot on your head, you see? And so they're, they're looking at something different than just verbal things now. Verse 9. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So what this verse reports is that reasonable measures were taken to protect those people who were working on the wall from violence. The people perceived the threat as real. It was a real threat. 
they were tired. And Sanballat's taunting, taunting had become somewhat effective. It does. Sometimes when people come at you, wave upon wave upon wave of negativity and negativity and negativity, you can't do that. You know, you're, you're not smart enough to do that. You don't have the skill to do that. You don't have the tools to do that. You don't have the raw materials to do that. It can weigh on you sometimes. And then add to it, well, okay, if you want to keep going, we're going to come over and we're going to put the hurt on you physically. Well, no wonder they became depressed. But we pray to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Once again, you see the pattern? He prays, and then he does something. He gets to work. He's not getting to work before he prays, but he prays and he gets to work. In verse 10, actually he switches to poetry here. Thus in Judah it has been said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. This is almost like a little song that perhaps they started singing. Maybe that's why he switched to poetry here. You know, negativity begets negativity oftentimes. Ever been in a group of people and the first person starts a conversation, you're tearing somebody down? Usually the second person doesn't start building somebody else up. You know, usually that's just kind of how we are. It just kind of spirals in a downward way. Well, these people picked up the verbiage that had been hurled at them, and they started believing it. And apparently when they were taking their breaks from working on the wall, they started saying, you know, I wonder if, I wonder if Nehemiah's going to get uphill doing this. I wonder what's going on when it comes to this. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe he's not the leader we thought he was. Maybe we're making a big mistake. So that's what they're saying here. The strength of the burden bearers is failing. That's an interesting way to put it, isn't it? It doesn't say right here the strength of the workers is failing. The strength of the burden bearers is failing. That gives you a verbal, a verbal picture, a word picture of people that just had the weight of the world on their shoulders. They're probably thinking, we had it okay before this Nehemiah guy came back. I mean, yeah, there wasn't any wall. We had no protection. We, we would never be able to worship in Jerusalem like we were designed to worship here. But, but gosh, I didn't have anybody wanting to whoop my tail for me as soon as I got off work tonight. I mean, I, I could go home without any kind of trouble at all. Well, now they're discouraged. Our enemy said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them. We'll put a stop to this work. Oh, my goodness. You talk about the, the temperature going up in a room. Now they're not going to get beat up. These people are going to die if they keep doing this. These aren't warriors. These aren't military people. These are common citizens that have been motivated by this great leader, Nehemiah, to come back and rebuild this wall. These are just everyday people. This isn't like, like Rambo and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jack Bauer. I mean, this isn't all those kind of people. These are just regular, everyday people. And they started this task, and now somebody says, you keep doing it, I'm going to kill you. It came about in verse 12, when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against you from every place where you may turn. In the very first lesson we had, we said that Nehemiah is going to have to deal with problems from without, and he's going to have to deal with problems from within. He's going to have to deal with problems from the Samaritans, and he's going to have to deal with problems from the Jews. Now some of the Jews that weren't participating in the rebuilding are starting to taunt them as well. Those are the Jews who live nearby. came and told us ten times. 
There's a reason why all this is in the text. They kept telling us this. Aren't you listening to me? They're going to come up against you from every place where you may turn. It's us, actually. Not only are they going to kill you, but it looks like they're going to bother us as well. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and exposed spaces, and I stationed the people in families with their swords, spears, and bows. Nehemiah's not backing down. But yeah, they said they're going to come kill us. Okay, I've got a plan. You keep building that wall, and right behind the wall that you're building, we're going to have some citizen soldiers there. And whatever weapons that we can come up with, we're going to use them because this is God's work, by golly, and it's not going to stop just because some ungodly people say we ought to stop it. So he devises a plan, a military plan, that makes me think back to our own time of a war for independence with Great Britain. There were certain regular military, but not very many at all. Most of the people that fought in that war were the militia. They were the farmers that picked up a gun. They could shoot real well, and they were led by some really incredible people, but they were, by all accounts, a pretty ragtag bunch. And sometimes the militia functioned very, very well, but there were certain parts of the war that as soon as the militia saw the redcoats out there lined up, they turned around and ran because they knew they were no match for the redcoats. Kind of have keep that in mind with these people's mindset. Again, these are not regular military people. Don't insert King David into this, or, or Jonathan, or even King Saul, any of those warriors of the past. These are just regular citizens that are about to be killed because of what they were doing. So it makes sense when we read in verse 14, Then I saw their fear. Just like the people in that great scene in Braveheart, where they're about to go out and meet the, the enemy, the, the British, who are all regular troops, who were all very well trained, and you have this ragtag bunch of people, primarily from Scotland, and they're going to go up against the British troops, and, and they realize they're toast. They're dead meat. And Wallace rides back and forth, and he exhorts them, don't turn tail and run. There are certain things worth fighting for, and your freedom is worth fighting for. Nehemiah is going to tell them that Jerusalem is worth fighting for. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Now, here's his William Wallace moment. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. That's short. It's shorter than William Wallace's speech, but it's effective. It had three primary points. Don't be afraid. Why should I not be afraid? Well, this is the biggest point of all. The Lord who is with you is more powerful than those who are against you. I know they look bad. I know they look tough. But tough as they look, they're not one one trillionth as tough as the Lord himself is. Don't be afraid. The Lord who is with you is more powerful than those who are against you. And then finally, fight for what's right. This is right. Fight for it. That's his William Wallace moment. I love that speech. What's right is to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses, your property. You notice that? Your family, but also your property. The Bible does recognize the right of one to own property and to call it their own and to defend that property. Now, to defend it reasonably. If someone happens to break into your garage this, this summer and you see them running down the street with your lawnmower, You've got your trusty 45 in the closet. You run out and get it, and you shoot them in the back as they're running away with your lawnmower. 
don't come to me to be a character witness for you because I'll say you could buy another lawnmower. It's not worth that. Now, if the person's breaking into your home in the middle of the night and you have no idea whether they're intending to steal something or do harm to you, your wife, or your kids, or your grandkids, you got to do what they got to do. They, they forfeited their rights. All I'm saying is use your head. So, but the Bible does say we can defend our property, but the, neither the Bible nor the state of Texas, by the way, <laughs> says that you can chase that person down the street and shoot them in the back. Yes, Christians have the right to have private property. We have the right to defend our property, but we need to do it reasonably. And you know deep down in your soul what's reasonable. Verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his own work. What that verse means is the enemy heard that we know that they're coming. And we've got a plan. And we're not going to let you just come and tear our wall down. We're not going to let you just come and kill our children and kill our wives and kill us. We're not going to let that happen. We're going to stand up against you. It's kind of like the, the person standing up to the bully on the schoolyard. It came about that from that day on, half of my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. He splits his force up. He still needs to get the job done, but he takes reasonable precautions. Half of you are going to work on the wall, and half of you are going to defend the people that are working on the wall. He's going to take one more step besides just that, and he's going to arm the people that are actually working. This is going to be a little bit cumbersome, but he does arm the people that are going to work. Those who were building, this verse 17, those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried the burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword, girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. So you got half the people working on the wall, half the people guarding the people working on the wall, the half of the people that are working on the wall are wearing their swords and have a weapon nearby. And then looking out over the whole crowd is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has a trumpeter standing right next to him. If there is an attack by Sanballat and Tobiah and the other worms, if there is an attack, then this trumpeter is going to blow the horn, sound the alarm for everybody, and then they can take up the arms. And everybody will take up arms and fight. Kind of like the Minutemen way before the time of the battles in Massachusetts. I said to the nobles and the rest of the officials and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Now, this is his William Wallace moment, part two. It's really, really short, but this is what's going to happen. You hear this trumpet sound. Let's say they're attacking the northwest quadrant then everybody's going to run to the northwest quadrant, and we're going to fight to the death right there as soon as you hear it sound. Oh, I love verses 21 through 23. So we carried on the work with half of them holding the spears from the dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me None of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. That might not have been good for, for sanitation, but it was good for the defense of that area. They didn't, they didn't even take their eye off the ball long enough to take care of normal sanitary needs. The rebuilding of the wall 
was a group effort undertaken under extremely difficult circumstances. The enemies of Israel used ridicule, criticism, and threats of violence in an effort to stop the work. But because of Nehemiah's principled spiritual leadership, the work continued in spite of their enemies' best efforts. Principled spiritual leadership presses forward in spite of opposition from evil.